0: How does crypto affect the world of gaming? Well, there are three key innovations right now. There are tokens, there are NFTs, and there are ZK Snarks. And I actually didn't know that ZK Snarks were applicable to gaming, but in today's episode I was convinced of that. Dark Forest is a game that is built around the Ethereum blockchain and it uses ZK Snarks to create hidden information dynamics. And the reason ZK-SNARKs are useful are because they are a way of validating that you have a certain piece of information without revealing that piece of information itself. I'm not going to pretend that I know how ZK-SNARKs actually work. I've done one or two shows on them. I was completely confused. But what I am very curious about getting familiar with is how you actually use them in consumer applications. and. Dark Forest is one of the most popular consumer applications that actually uses ZK Snarks on a regular basis. Brian Goo is the creator of Dark Forest, and he's a profound thinker about games. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode if you like gaming or you like crypto or you like the intersection of the two. I certainly had a great conversation. Our first book is coming soon. Move Fast is a book about how Facebook builds software It comes out July 6th, and it's something we're pretty proud of. We've spent about two and a half years on this book, and it's been a great exploration of how one of the most successful companies in the world builds software. In the process of writing Move Fast, I was reinforced with regard to the idea that I want to build a software company, and I have a new idea that I'm starting to build, The difference between this company and the previous software companies that I've started is I need to let go of some of the responsibilities of Software Engineering Daily. We're going to be starting to transition to having more voices on Software Engineering Daily. And in the long run, I think this will be much better for the business because we'll have a deeper, more diverse voice about what the world of software entails. If you are interested in becoming a host, please email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. This is a paid opportunity, and it's also a great opportunity for learning and access and growing your personal brand. Speaking of personal brand, we are starting a YouTube channel as well. We'll start to air choice interviews that we've done in person at a studio, And these are high-quality videos that we're going to be uploading to YouTube. And you can subscribe to those videos at YouTube and find the Software Daily YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. I hope you check out Move Fast. And very soon, thanks for watching Software Daily. Brian, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me here, Jeffrey. You work on Dark Forest. Dark Forest is a game that is tied to the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And my first question is around crypto and gaming holistically. So gaming is one of those really flexible technology domains where whenever something new is built, whatever new kind of technology comes out, it's going to be used somehow in gaming because gaming is such a big domain. What are the applications of crypto technology in the gaming industry? Yeah,
1: for sure. That's a great question. I think that there's a couple of exciting things about the intersection, particularly of crypto and gaming. So the first thing I think is actually, you know, a little bit more general and, and broadly applicable to platforms beyond just crypto. I think that gaming is a really exciting opportunity to test out new technologies in environments that are often, you might consider them lower stakes than, you know. for example, like there's a lot of financial applications being uh, built on Ethereum. And those things are are really mission critical and you cannot screw up smart contracts or or the infrastructure that you're building around that. But gaming allows us to be a little bit more playful and to experiment with different sorts of mechanics and different sort of affordances of the technology that might be more experimental. So that's sort of a broad answer to why I think gaming is Exciting in any up and coming platform. Specifically, the affordances that I think are interesting around gaming on crypto, though, are I would say that, you know, the most obvious one is that you can start building games um, that take advantage of native APIs into money. So, you know, the idea that in a game, your assets can have real value is, I think, something that people are starting to pick up more, uh, pick up on more and more. And, you know, there's this idea almost that you can have these games that have real world consequences. So for example, in Dark Forest, if I conquer your planet, or if I take one of your items, then that's, you know, that might be the equivalent to me taking some sort of economic or like financial value from, from your player in the game. But the thing that I think is actually even more interesting and important than this is the idea that games built on decentralized systems are infinitely interoperable and composable in ways that games built in the traditional way are not. So, for example, one thing that you get for free whenever you build any application on blockchain is that it the application is client agnostic. In other words, you know, you're going to deploy some smart contracts up to the blockchain that will basically define how you can programmatically interact with the data layer of the application but beyond that you know usually developers might provide like a default client to to actually make those interactions but really anybody can spin up you know an alternate web client of their own you know, we can go even deeper into beyond just the, you know, user-facing client that people are using to interact with the game, people can start writing interoperable smart contracts on top of the game, defining their own mechanics, expansions, all sorts of interesting things. And, and that's the we're seeing some of the early signs of that right now at Dark Force, which is what gets us really excited.
0: Okay, so you laid out some really cool ideas there. And when I look at the ways that that these ideas are actually being captured. I don't really see many companies that are doing any of the things that you're describing. I see, you know, there are people who are doing interesting things with NFTs. There are people that are basically porting old world games to have some contrived crypto mechanics. But Dark Forest is, to my mind, the first game that really integrates crypto in a unique, like, category reinventing style. Are are there any other games that are really taking advantage of what you can do in the crypto world?
1: I think that in the next couple of years we're going to start see we're going to start seeing more and more games doing this. Um, so one thing that I'm also really excited about right now is we're exploring with a couple of teams the idea of other sorts of zero-knowledge crypto mechanics that can be used to make crypto-first games. So, for example, I, th- I think that zero-knowledge cryptography in Dark Forest is really important because it allows for these sorts of like, we use it for these information asymmetry fog of war sorts of mechanics. But ZK has tons of other applications as well. Um, it can be used, it could be used to, for example, create like a very compelling trading card game on the blockchain. It could be used to create like open sandbox worlds, you know, assuming once, once performance gets a little better and things get optimized. I I think that I would broadly agree that most crypto gaming experiments that I've seen in the space so far, to me, either feel like, you know, take something from the traditional gaming paradigm and put some crypto integration into it. Like now the items are NFTs or, you know, there's a crypto wallet somehow in this mobile game. Or there are things like, you know, you start with some crypto application and you gamify it. So you'll see a lot of DeFi apps that are you know, financial applications, but they feel gamified. And, and you know, players often feel like using the application is very playful. But yeah, I, I think I would agree that the next step for crypto gaming is really to have games that are natively built for the blockchain.
0: Dark Forest is a kind of a complicated, intimidating game for people who are new to it. I'll say that from personal experience. Why didn't you make a game that's more accessible? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, my answer to this is that, you know, from the beginning, at the very least, like at the very beginning, when we started building Dark Forest, it was more of a technology experiment, at least for me personally, than it was a game. And over time, it evolved into being something that had compelling gameplay mechanics for some subset of players. But initially, when we started thinking about kind of like the underlying crypto constructions for Dark Forest in 2019. I myself was just getting into ZK crypto and exploring the space and seeing what was possible. And then over time, I just, you know, I realized like I, I wasn't able to get, I was just so excited about the idea of actually trying to bring it to something that, that people could play that we ended up just sort of layering on more and more mechanics. And I think that you know, the core mechanic, like this information fog of war is something that is probably more hardcore or competitive player friendly than casual player friendly. But I think that crypto gaming will go mainstream once those casual uh, sorts of gameplay modes exist. And I'd love to explore that more as well.
0: Explain what your game is, like explain what the player is actually doing.
1: Yeah, so Dark Forest is basically a massively multiplayer online strategy game. It's space themed, so it's a space conquest game. Essentially, you initialize into this massive, um, you know, like infinite procedurally generated universe with hundreds or thousands of other players, and you know, you spawn on what we call your home planet. Now, the universe is this giant expanding disk that contains within it millions of planets. And your goal is sort of to explore the universe and gradually conquer more planets and expand your space empire. And usually for each round, we put in some sort of objective into the game to make it competitive, to make it so that players kind of have something to compete on. Um, in the last round, for example, the goal of players was to find certain kinds of celestial objects, which we called asteroid fields, to mine resources on them and to ferry those to to trading posts and pull those out of the game that way. Um, and that was their objective function and the player's... Would be scored based on how well they were able to do that. So you're kind of exploring the universe, growing your empire, completing some objectives, competing with other players, engaging in diplomacy with them, space conquest RTS game.
0: What does Dark Forest refer to?
1: So Dark Forest, the game was actually inspired by, you know, if any listeners are familiar with uh, Leo Sashin's three body trilogy, the second novel in that trilogy is called The Dark Forest. And that itself is a reference to Dark Forest Theory, which is kind of a thought experiment that's an answer to the Fermi paradox. I don't know if I want to spoil it for for anyone who hasn't read the trilogy and has been meaning to, but I don't know. What what do you think, Jeffrey?
0: I haven't read the trilogy yet. You could spoil it if you want. You could just say spoiler alert, and I don't personally care. Spoiler alert, now's your chance to turn off the podcast if you don't want to ruin (laughs) one of the best books in history. (laughs)
1: For sure. So yeah, basically, the idea behind dark forest theory is, you know, it's an answer to the question of why have we not been contacted by any other alien civilizations. And dark forest theory posits that it's basically incredibly dangerous for you, as a civilization, as an intelligent civilization in the universe, to make information about yourself known to the rest of the universe. And the idea here is basically that, you know, suppose that you learn of the existence of some other civilization. Now, because there is such a large distance and cultural gap between you and this other civilization, it's hard to communicate. It might be hard to come to alignment with them on their values. You might not know, you know, are they a friendly civilization? Are they a hostile civilization? And furthermore, because the distances in space are so vast, you also have a lag time of because of limitations on the speed of light you might have a lag time of years centuries or even longer on what is the latest status of the civilization with respect to technological development so given the uncertainty and just like the fear that you might feel around the other civilization being hostile and the lack of information that you have you know dark force theory posits that the best thing that you can do is pretty much to make a preemptive strike so if you can imagine, there might be thousands of these different intelligent species floating around the galaxy. They're all kind of, you know, it, it's as if they're these like sneaky animals kind of creeping around a dark forest, trying to not make others aware of them. Whenever they become aware of some some other species, they might, you know, try to take some hostile preemptive action in order to ensure that they themselves uh, don't get attacked first. And the idea here is basically that like information becomes a very important resource in a universe such as this. And that's kind of what the dark forest game is is all about as well
0: so dark forest uses zk snarks and to me of all the of all the innovations that crypto brings it is not intuitive to me that zk snarks would be useful as a game mechanic could you briefly explain what zk snarks are and just I think actually, probably a lot of people listening know know kind of what they're used for, but maybe we could just rehash what they're used for real quick and then talk about their applications in gaming
1: for sure so z k snarks are basically a cryptographic tool that allow you to prove that you have correctly executed computation on some hidden inputs, so you know maybe there's some computation that I want to perform, like transferring some coins between balances, but I want to keep some particular inputs to that function that I'm executing private, for example, maybe like the sender and the receiver, um, or like the amount of coins that I'm transferring. So what I can do is I can present to you with the output of this computation, the end result of the execution of this function, and this ZK proof, a zero knowledge proof that essentially acts as like a signature on the computation. And without knowing the inputs or the exact computation steps that I took, you can just look at that signature of the computation and in very short order, verify it to ensure that you can trust the results of this uh, this computation. So I think that the first two things that a lot of people get excited about in terms of applications of ZK-SNARKs are around privacy technology and scalability technology in blockchains. I think the application to privacy is fairly straightforward because essentially what ZK-SNARKs ensure is that, you know, like by default, everything on a blockchain is public. Um, that's what makes Bitcoin and Ethereum trustless. Anybody can basically go through the entire transaction history and verify that everything was executed correctly up to the present point. This is there's a downside to this though, which means that you know all of your transaction data, all of the inputs and outputs of anything that you're doing with any given account on the blockchain are public. So zk snarks would allow us to basically allow us to perform transactions in a more kind of private manner where we might be able to partially, say like hide or encrypt certain key parts of data that we don't want to be known to the world while still maintaining the security guarantees and those verifiability properties that are so important to blockchains. Now, the second application that I think a lot of people are really excited about is scalability. And this comes up in a new sorts of layer two blockchain constructions that use ZK rollup. And the idea here is basically that using ZK-SNARKs, you can roll up computations into just verification. So this is actually not using the the zero knowledge or the hiding property of ZK-SNARKs. But what ZK-SNARKs say is that if someone was willing to generate a proof that they performed a computation correctly, in order to verify the correctness of the outputs of that computation, rather than doing the whole thing yourself, all you have to do is verify the proof. And it turns out that proof verification with ZK-SNARKs is actually quite efficient. Um, So this speeds up up a lot of operations that ordinarily would take a lot of people doing a lot of redundant computation to begin with. Now, the last application is gaming, which I think is actually quite underlooked, which is obviously what I'm personally most excited about. And the idea here is that within games, you can sort of break up all games into two categories, complete information games and incomplete information games. Complete information games are games where all players know the full state of the world. So you can imagine games like, you know, chess or checkers, um, where like I know where your pieces are and you know where my pieces are. Now, incomplete information games are basically all other games. You know, you can imagine like poker, for example, is an incomplete information game because we don't know what cards each other has. And StarCraft is an incomplete information game because until I have a vision or knowledge of where your base is, I don't know what units you're producing or, or what you might be strategizing. Now, it turns out that like I think pretty much all massively multiplayer online games have some sort of incomplete information component to them. And I think that's because incomplete information allows us to to dig into a lot more nuanced social mechanics. So, you know, incomplete information enables things like deception or conditional coordination and a lot of emergent uh, sort of social dynamics. Unfortunately, because of the open and transparent nature of blockchains and decentralized systems, it's been really hard to build incomplete information games on these decentralized systems. So, you know, for example, you might be able to build a game like CryptoKitties, where everyone knows, you know, who owns what kitty and what what all the properties of each kitty are. But you're going to have a hard time going past the complexity of something that looks like a trading card game. I think, unless you can use um, incomplete information in some manner. And this is basically where ZK-SNARKs come in. Because ZK-SNARKs allow you to perform computation on private data, but in a verifiable way, they're going to open up a lot of these kinds of incomplete information mechanics that previously weren't possible because of the transparent and open nature of data on a blockchain.
0: Now, I'd like to make a little bit clearer what you just said, the, the tail end of what you just said. You're talking about, if I understand correctly cryptographically verifiable private information, in-game private information. So maybe that you could cryptographically verify that your whole cards in poker are not being exposed. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Is that an application?
1: Yeah. So what you might be able to do is you might be able to draw cards privately from a deck and essentially ordinarily without something like ZK Snarks, you might have to reveal your cards out into the open to ensure that later you don't cheat and play a card that you don't actually have. But with something like ZK Snarks, you'd be able to draw cards into your hand. And then in a future round, when you want to play a card, you can reveal one of the cards and use a ZK proof to demonstrate that all of those actions ago, when you drew cards, you did in fact draw that one card. But at the time, the the um, other players wouldn't have known.
0: Okay, this is so hard for me to grasp because like... If the code is closed source, this is impossible to do. And if the code is open source, then why would you need the ZK-SNARK? You know the series of computational steps that are going to be applied, right? Like, I still don't understand what the ZK-SNARK solves here.
1: Yeah, this is a great question. So maybe as an example, I'll take kind of a toy version of of the mechanic that's going on in dark forest so let's imagine that we have a game where location information is private so you know maybe you have some pieces on a board um, on a really large board with other players but you don't want other players to know where your pieces are so you know something like battleship or something and imagine also that you can move your pieces around so you know a variant this might be a variant of battleship where you've got submarines and you can move submarines underwater but you don't want other players to know exactly where your submarine is What you're going to do is you're going to be storing locally this private data about the actual coordinates of, you know, let's say your submarine, right? And you're going to upload a commitment to this private data up to the blockchain. So you might hash these coordinates, for example, and then upload that hash to the blockchain, but you're not going to upload the coordinates themselves. That's going to be stored, i.e., like if this is a browser game in like your browser's local storage. Now, whenever you want to make a move, what we need to make sure on the smart contract side is that you're not, say, teleporting your submarine across the map in a way that's not allowed by the rules of the game. So what you'll do is, locally, you're going to update the coordinates of your submarine from, let's say, you know, 1, 1 to 3, 2 or something like that. Then what you'll do is you will publish a commitment to your new private state, i.e. like the hash of the coordinates 3, 2. Up to the blockchain. And because hashes are hard to reverse, you know, anybody just looking at that hash, let's say it's, it's like a salted hash, anybody looking at that isn't going to be able to reverse engineer your private data, which is the location of your, your piece, the submarine. And then in addition to that commitment, you're also going to publish a ZK proof that there was a valid state transition between your first private state and your second private state. So for example, let's say that you know in this submarine game, submarines can move like knights in chess, so they can move in L shapes. So you're basically going to publish up a proof to the blockchain that I moved my submarine from secret location A to secret location B. I'm not going to tell you what secret locations A and B are, but this proof does prove that the move was an L shape. Not going to say anything about the orientation of the L shape or anything like that, just that it was indeed a valid L shape and a valid move.
0: Okay, but why do you need crypto for this? Why doesn't the game server I mean, I know that this is like this would be appealing to centralization because there's some game server, but even if the game server is an eth a set of eth contracts, like that does the trick, right? I don't understand why you need the proof.
1: Well, what's going to happen is like because I'm hashing my private state I'm uploading a commitment to my private state from which my private state can't be inferred. Right. So if I'm sending some hash of those coordinates one, comma, one that my submarine started on to the contract, and then without a ZK proof, I decided I wanted to cheat and move my submarine all the way across the map to say the coordinates 10, 10, I would just be up. All the contract would be seeing would be like the hash of the coordinates one, comma, one, and then the hash of the coordinates 10, 10, but it wouldn't know that. Like those hashes correspond to those coordinates. It just sees these hashes as essentially random strings. So the contract wouldn't be able to verify that there is a valid state transition between the first private state and the second private state. So the contract and any outside observer, these just look like random strings of bytes and they have no idea of checking for the validity of like, is this player trying to, trying to cheat me? Are they trying to, you know, do something illegal? That stuff has traditionally either been done by either making all of your state public or else you just wouldn't be able to verify it. But but ZK proofs allow us to do this in a way such that your privacy is preserved, but also the contracts can check the validity of your state transitions.
0: And just to help help me refine my understanding of this, like I, I'm starting to get an intuition for what you're talking about here, but why couldn't I just implement the game so that the client prevents me from making an illegal move? Like, shouldn't the client just be able to reject any move that does not have a valid L-shape to it?
1: Yeah, so so this is a really great question as well. And um, it goes back to the property of blockchain games and I think decentralized apps broadly, that is that they are client agnostic. So I think, you know, with a lot of traditional games, let's say with, let's say like RuneScape or something like that, it's often the case that the client that is distributed by the game studio is the game. So in particular, the game studio will make a contract with players essentially saying that if you decide to try to use like a hacked client or an open source client with like illegal plugins or modifications to it, then that is a bannable offense. Now with blockchain apps, blockchain apps are permissionless. So you can't gatekeep the apps by specifying which clients the users have to use to connect to the application. Anybody can make any transaction on the blockchain without having to go through, for example, our web servers that are distributing our like, you know, sort of vanilla client. So that means that anybody can, for example, use automations as they please. They can fudge transaction inputs to be whatever they'd like. And it's on us on the smart contract side to ensure the validity of any transaction or move that players are trying to make in the
0: game. That idea of the... Client agnostic architecture. What does that enable? Like, what does the world look like when we have more of a open back end API for gaming systems?
1: Right. So this is one of the things that we're most excited about with Dark Forest. We've been seeing people building things like third party clients or automations or, you know, we have a very rudimentary plugin system, for example, in the game, um, and a budding sort of community plugins ecosystem that's getting built out. We're seeing players build out, for example, automations that will automatically ferry resources between planets and then distributing those plugins. And then those plugins themselves become first class features of a lot of players' as games. So the, one of the exciting consequences of games being client agnostic is that players can customize the gaming experience to their liking, deciding you know which features do I want to be a part of my core gameplay loop and which features do I want to do without? If players want, they could reskin the entire game. At the bottom level, the game is just a series of data transformations. So you can imagine that while Dark Forest, the way that we present it as the devs in our native client, is a space-themed game where you're conquering planets and expanding a, a space empire, someone else could come in and make some sort of like medieval-themed. Mm-hmm. You know, skin on top of the game, where you know you're going from castle to castle or village to village, and dragons are flying around instead of spaceships. So I think that you know the high level theme here is that we want to open it up to just see what developers do on top of the game and and sort of harness the creativity of a player community um, rather than dictating from the top down what is the gameplay experience supposed to be like um, and what features or mechanics are or aren't going to be a part of the game.
0: And I can see why that makes a lot of sense for Dark Forest, because when I look at Dark Forest, I basically see, I mean, I do see the the expansiveness of, of an MMO like World of Warcraft. You just have like a UI that looks like it's on an Atari machine, basically, <laughs> which is great. Which is great because who yeah. needs, like you could, whatever, you can make the implement of like really, really fancy UI later on if you want. Like you basically have implemented the command line of Dark Forest.
1: Yeah. And, you know, on the right side of the game, there literally is something that acts as as a terminal as well, which you can type JavaScript into. So yeah, just very, very minimal, but functional, hopefully.
0: I'd be curious about what your what your um, game influences are. This it kind of reminds me, I never played it, but I heard... E- Have you heard of Eve Online?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so I've heard that Eve Online is kind of like this, but but what are your inspirations when it comes to the design of the game?
1: For sure. So the core mechanic of the game, which is basically just transferring this resource we call energy between planets, is inspired by a class of games that I think descended from a game called Galcon, which was basically this, you know this relatively simple space rts game Um, you have planets they have energy on them or population or army or something like that over time the planets are producing more and more troops i guess i I don't actually remember what the resource was called but the idea here was that you could you know just click and drag from one planet to another to transfer troops over and the idea is you know you'd get dropped into a map with a bunch of planets on it with either like an ai player or maybe you know another human player uh, and you'd both be trying to conquer this map and and destroy the other player by taking over their planet so you'd want to pick out the uh the planets that had like strategically placed locations or like higher growth rates or stuff like that so that's kind of like the inspiration behind the core mechanic of the game the way i came upon this genre was when i was a kid i remember being on like armorgames.com and playing a game called phage wars which was essentially like a reskinning of this but with like cells so you're like you know a bunch of bacteria in a cell culture on a petri dish and you're like spreading out your colony between all these different cells. But beyond that, what we've found is I think that a lot of like the blockchain is a pretty constrained execution environment. And so when we decide to, you know, try to come up with different mechanics, a lot of times they're pretty much just like the simplest thing that is you know, puts us on the board on a certain dimension in terms of having a strategy game. So there's like one economic resource, and that's silver. And that's just mined on a certain planet could be moved between planets, and it can be used to upgrade planets. So I, I think the core of the game really is just that energy moving mechanic.
0: Tell me a little bit more about what the player is doing in the game. And then and then we can talk about the architecture of how you're actually building this.
1: Yeah, so if you're a player and you're coming in and you are not coding, you are using our default web client. And and the default web client basically allows you to do a small number of fairly simple actions. So the first one is that energy is a, a resource that is naturally going to grow over time on planets that you own. You can move energy from a planet that you own to another planet that you own, just a simple kind of click and drag. You can decide, you know, how what proportion of the energy on the origin planet you want to send. And if you are sending energy to an unowned planet that doesn't currently have another player owner, sending energy to that planet will conquer it. So that's sort of the most basic like core gameplay loop. Now, besides planets, there's a couple of other celestial objects in the game, such as asteroid fields, where you can mine uh, silver, which is the economic resource of the game. Now, if you conquer an asteroid field, it will start to build up this economic resource over time, and then you can you can ferry that over to other different planets and use that to upgrade your planets, upgrading various... Um, Stats like the speed at which they can send moves, or the range that they can send moves, or the defense of the planet, which is useful if you're under attack by another player. And that is pretty much it. Beyond this, pretty much everything else is going to be constructed by the players. So for example, you might run into another player, and there might be like some you know, very valuable or important planet that both of you would like to hold, you both might engage in some sort of negotiation, like I might trade some map data that I have that, you know, I've, I've explored like this section of the universe, you haven't explored it, I might trade that for access to this planet. Yeah, other than that, we we pretty much leave it up entirely to the players. Oh, I guess the last kind of important component that was introduced in the last two versions is this notion of artifacts. So on certain objects called foundries, if you conquer a foundry, then you can prospect the foundry to find an NFT artifact. And this is essentially a item that allows you to power up a planet it's it's almost like a transferable upgrade so some artifacts will allow your planet to um, have a stat boost increase others might confer like some sort of special effect like for example the black domain artifact allows you to essentially just nuke a planet just destroy it and remove it entirely from the game so there's also these nft items that are floating around the universe and and players are sort of contesting um, and i think that gives rise to a lot of interesting dynamics as well
0: i i don't think we can do the game and its interface justice over audio so i w- would encourage anybody who is intrigued at this point to check out the interface it is it does look like basically an, uh, like a screen from an atari game flanked by two text like text terminals <laughs> which is it's pretty cool so now that we've given a bit of an outline for what the game is and and how it looks talk about the architecture like how is this game actually written and deployed
1: Right. So the uh, thing that corresponds uh, most closely to a traditional game backend is a set of smart contracts that's deployed to an Ethereum virtual machine compatible blockchain. So I think for the first versions of the game, we were deploying on the Ropsten test network, which is um, essentially a testnet that's going to be more or less identical to the Ethereum mainnet. But you know, it's not really endowed with economic value. It's its purpose is mainly for testing out applications in low-cost settings. Now we deploy our contracts to XDI, which is a side chain. Essentially, that's a blockchain that uses uses a similar sort of virtual machine that Ethereum does. It's the same EVM, but basically there's a different consensus mechanism and it's we treat it as sort of like a staging environment for the game while it's still in beta, because Ethereum gas costs are super high, but gas costs on these sidechain staging environments are much, much lower. So we have this set of uh, smart contracts that's deployed onto the EVM, and additionally, we also provide a default web client for players to interact with the game with. So if you go to you know the URL zkga.me, you know, ZK game, you'll load up a default web client. It's just a static site that essentially connects to a blockchain node and allows you to download data from the blockchain so that you can build up your representation of the game in your browser. And whenever you make a move, it will send a transaction up to the blockchain that you'll have to wait for that transaction to get confirmed and mined, and then it's reflected in your browser. Additionally, beyond that, we also provide, you know, the game is open source. So we also just provide um, all the client code online on GitHub as well. And I know that a lot of players basically like will fork this a client repository, customize it to their own liking, and basically run that locally. And they're able to connect to the blockchain as well, either by you know connecting to a public blockchain node or by running their own blockchain node.
0: As you described, the application runs on the XDAI network, this Ethereum compatible network that is not on Ethereum, so you can avoid the gas costs. Out of curiosity, how does that network work? work? Is it just like, you've only got like, there's a few boxes out there. Are they on AWS or something? Like what is the XDAI network?
1: Yeah. So the XDAI network is essentially going to be, it's going to be very similar to the Ethereum mainnet, um, except with a different consensus mechanism. So on the Ethereum mainnet, Ethereum uses a consensus mechanism very similar to Bitcoins, which is proof of work. So at all times you have all of these mining nodes all over the world basically racing to try to put together the, the next block and mine out some, you know, hash pre-image that corresponds to a hash starting with, you know, some number of zeros. And that consensus mechanism is a very like open and decentralized and permissionless one. Anybody can join it. And, you know, obviously there's there's downsides as well in terms of the energy cost and things like that, but that's what Ethereum has been on for many years. On the other hand, side chains, some side chains like XDAI exist, which basically are closer to you know, a hybrid like proof of stake or proof of authority sort of consensus mechanism. So in particular on XDI, I believe that there are about a dozen validators that are, uh, these are like the dozen special nodes that are permissioned to mine blocks and and push them up to the network. These validators can vote on various protocol governance things like adding validators or slashing other validators. If validators act not in accordance with the protocol i.e. like they you know they do something illegal um then they can be slashed with the native current or with the with the stake token i believe and yeah it's it's not going to rank as high on decentralization but it is very convenient i think as a network with low gas fees um, and a place to kind of prove concept for a lot of applications and and there is a lot of real financial activity i think being transacted on the XDI network as well
0: so this is fascinating to me. The X, so XDAI is actually, there's actually people working on it and it's like a profitable sort of thing because they've got a token.
1: Yeah. So I believe that the, and I'm not 100% sure if this is exactly technically correct, but you know, one of the kind of foundational parts of the XDAI network is the stake token. And what's going to happen is that each of these about like a dozen validators are going to put up some stake token. And essentially the protocol is going to say that if one of the validators acts in a way that's not accord- in accordance with the protocol rules, their stake of stake token can be burned or slashed or probably like redistributed to the other validators or something like that. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm aware that like, at least like there are a class of side chains that have mechanisms such as this.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me because I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, even thought about. I mean, it's, I guess, I mean, the use case that you're basically describing is staging infrastructure for Ethereum smart contracts, or I guess more centralized infrastructure. It could be used for staging. I mean, this is, I, I'm not, I'm not super uh, familiar with the with the crypto ecosystem, so uh, this is an interesting uh, realization for me that there is this kind of staging infrastructure, or infrastructure that can be used for staging.
1: Yeah, and this is kind of what test nets also were are used for largely. So for example, Ethereum has a number of test nets, many of which have different consensus mechanisms. You know, the Ropsten testnet is uses the proof of work consensus mechanism. So you can test your miners on that one. Other ones are proof of authority. So basically there's like a small permission set of nodes that can push new blocks to the network. Um and oftentimes before a production release on mainnet, applications will test out deployments um, and stuff in these kinds of test environments.
0: Right. And maybe this is a naive question, but given that you're, you are in staging or you're thinking yourself of in staging, why isn't there just some way to like run this on like a few AWS nodes? Like, why wouldn't you just do that?
1: Yeah, so... I think that you know the eventual goal is definitely to get something that is deployed on a you know completely decentralized and permissionless blockchain, but in order to do that, we have to build with that in mind now, so that means that we have to build our smart contracts using the solidity programming language or at least like some programming language with a compiler that that can target the ethereum virtual machine and I think that you know we could for example do things like spin up our own proof of authority network with nodes that are run on on like aws boxes or something like that but for now if our eventual goal is to target some sort of you know like layer two or um some like evm compatible chain or construction then you know for now we've just found that it's been it's been very, very easy and convenient to deploy onto XDI. and it would actually take us, I think, more effort if we wanted to spin up um, some AWS boxes, run our own network, or even run something that like mocks the blockchain. Early on, we actually did build out um, what we called a mock chain, which was a web server that exposed the same interfaces as you know as a blockchain would, at least to our web client. And it just, and, you know, we were able to sort of like write the logic of the game in JavaScript and stuff like that. But but that actually turned out to be like more of a hassle because then we were maintaining like the mock chain as well as the smart contracts, which were eventually going to get deployed to a real network. And this like client that had to be able to connect to both. So yeah, I, I think it is like a sufficiently different environment that it's been easiest for us to develop specifically for the blockchain.
0: All right. So continuing our um, crypto gaming bingo board. I have to ask you about issuing an in-game currency. Can you do that in a legal way? I'm very curious about the legality of in-game currencies and how you can use them in-game.
1: Yeah. So we actually have not been thinking about this question too hard because for us right now, like the goal is really just to build a fun gameplay experience first. So for example, like there aren't really economic mechanisms built into the game Which I think is actually like from my perspective, the thing that excites me most about crypto is the tech and this idea that these applications are fully composable, client agnostic, interoperable. They can lean into a lot of, you know, like they can harness a lot of third party developer ecosystem energy. So, for us, we actually, like, we don't currently have any sort of concrete plans to issue in-game currencies or something like that. Um, you know, like, who knows, in the future it may be possible. But we've found that by focusing on the tech and on the gameplay experience, we've also, it's had this nice second-order effect of the community that's starting to get built around the game is very focused around stuff like development and the game for intrinsic reasons rather than extrinsic reasons, like, you know, is the token of the game going to go up or something like that. Um, we're trying to avoid building out, like, a a community that's based on like speculation or something like that you know at least for these like early days we we really want to focus on making a good core gameplay experience
0: certainly but think about i haven't played any of these games in detail but as i understand second life world of warcraft diablo these games have currency in them and the currency creates this really fun second order ecosystem within the game and like crypto seems to just supercharge that right
1: yeah, that's definitely true, and and we do know that like some economic activity is happening out of band. Like players are trading items for, are like artifacts in the game for other cryptocurrencies, or they're making trades of planets or or various other assets within the game. Um, so we think that stuff is going to evolve naturally. In fact, like because crypt- crypto makes it so frictionless for this to happen, it's it's got to happen at some point. But I think like for us, one of the advantages of being on a blockchain is that. We do not control this activity. For example, we're not controlling the on and off ramps where people are loading money or value like into their cryptocurrency wallet. That's something that's happening on a lower level of abstraction from us. And because of that, I I think that helps alleviate some of the concerns about like, are we facilitating the transfer of, you know, these certain assets with economic value? I know that like a lot of games are really cautious about these other about like out of band markets where say like runescape gp or wow gold or something is being exchanged for money for a variety of reasons for us like the interesting thing about building on a blockchain is like just like the game is client agnostic from the very beginning like we simply cannot control what what client players are using to play the game similarly any sort of Economic activity that players are engaging in is something that is you know, to begin with out of our control. We're deploying these smart contracts up to the blockchain. Anyone can interact with them however they like. In some sense, we are just one of many participants in this open and permissionless ecosystem, um, and no participant, uh, so long as there aren't you know once like things like admin controls and stuff are removed from the contract, no participant can dictate dictate what economic activity does or doesn't happen
0: of all the things you could work on in crypto, there are so many, so many domains you could focus on. Why are you focused on gaming?
1: I'm personally excited about gaming, because I think that gaming allows us to present a vision for the future in a way that might not be realizable with more, you know, say, like, quote, unquote, high stakes applications today. So for example. I think that a lot of interesting activity is going on around the idea of interoperable contracts built on Dark Forest that might allow for things like player guilds or organizations. And I think that in the long run, these might allow for a safe experimentation ground for things like DAOs or governance structures or other things for, for crypto native worlds. So to me, it's really exciting because we get to prove out a lot of things that could one day become core patterns whether in blockchain technology and programming or blockchain governance and organization but in a way that we can we can iterate very very quickly obviously it's also very fun <laughs> to build a game like i played a lot of games as a kid and and in the day to day it's just exciting to try to put together a compelling set of mechanics as well so that i think is is sort of the bundle of resources that gets me really excited about crypto gaming
0: so you see Dark Forest as essentially a like a testing metaverse for ideas in a post crypto society.
1: I think so. I think at least it's a safe place for experimentation. You know, compared to I, I think, for example, like you know, you use the the word metaverse, which I which I really really love, and. I think that, for example, the, the metaverse of the future, the shared digital space that we all interact on is not going to be top down designed. It's not going to be like a universe that some company decides to, you know, like write out a product roadmap for and then, you know, do like a a round of internal testing and then they release it to the world and then boom, like, you know, a couple years later, everybody is on, on the metaverse. And, and that's also not the metaverse that I would want to see in the world either. Like I want to see something that's grassroots built from bottom-up experimentation. Perhaps it's the combination of a bunch of open protocols and standards. Um, and I think that dark forest hopefully can be a part of whatever that that grassroots process is of experimentation around everything from governance to digital physics, like how do we move around in the metaverse to, you know, the patterns of of what are the best uh, leveraged ways to use these blockchain kind of affordances and financial mechanisms. So yeah, some sort of like proto metaverse grand social experiment. Um, I don't even know that we necessarily have a word for it ourselves.
0: Okay, that's really exciting. Last question. Tell me about the canonical engineering problems of building Dark Forest. Like what are the things that you're running into time and time again that are frustrating you?
1: Yeah, one thing that we kept running into early on before I had a better grasp of of, you know, EVM internals was so you're in a really constrained execution environment and like one issue is that smart contracts have a limited size. So you can only deploy contracts of up to a certain size up to the blockchain. So that's kind of forced us to try to figure out how to break up logic into a bunch of different like library contracts and understand how you know, we can have like this deployment of a bundle of contracts talking to each other in, in the correct ways so that we're not deploying any single contract that is too large. So we're sort of like sharding our the game logic into multiple different contracts, which, you know, has been like an interesting problem and a fun learning opportunity. Another thing that I think has been challenging has been, so for example, like one common pattern that I think more and more applications are using in blockchain is the idea of contract upgradability. So, you know, when you push a smart contract up to the blockchain, naively, you can't, easily change the code of of what is running. And that's sort of the guarantee of immutability that blockchain provides is both a strength and a weakness. But you can do kind of clever tricks such as routing Transactions that players are making through like a proxy smart contract that talks to one of N different implementation smart contracts. And if you discover a bug, then you can sort of swap out which logic contract is being used to essentially like handle that transaction that's just been routed through the proxy contract. So setting up the upgradable contracts architecture uh, was also kind of an interesting problem as well. And And that's been really useful for resolving like sometimes a player will come to us saying like, Hey, like I noticed this, you know, like. Reentrancy error, for example, in in how art- artifacts are harvested, um, that was a really fun one to look at. Um, and this again goes back to like games are a safe space for experimentation. I think relative to a lot of financial applications. So yeah, the upgradeability has been an interesting question, and I, I think the last one that's been a perennial struggle, and which we have just now started to get a handle on, is you know I think a lot of people talk about issues with blockchain scalability in terms of transaction throughput, but another Problem that we've run into is scalability in terms of reads from the blockchain. So we've been working with the XDI network because players, um, there's like so much data in this contract. There's like literally like hundreds of thousands of planets that are essentially being stored all on chain. Players are downloading, you know, huge segments of that every time they log into the game and they're listening for updates to this like massive amount of state. We need to provide players with a default blockchain node that they can connect to. So that way they can fetch all of this data without having to run their own node at the start. Though I think a lot of more advanced players will be running their own personal nodes. And we've basically, you know, Xino has been doing a lot of work to maintain like a fleet of these public node endpoints that is, you know, sort of hidden behind a load balancer and is able to appropriately handle those requests. And from our end, it's kind of tuning the way that we fetch data from the blockchain um, to be more efficient as well.
0: All right, so you've given me basically two requests for startups. The first one is we need <laughs> uh, we need continuous integration pipelines for smart contracts. That's the first one, and then we need Redis for <laughs> for the XDI network. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right, right, and and you know I think that a lot of these like tools are getting built out in responses to problems like this. So there's a bunch of different companies or protocols that are taking different approaches. For example, one thing we've recently started experimenting with is a tool called the graph that is a layer on top of the blockchain that will like listen for and index blockchain data.
0: Yeah, this this is one of the, this is one, that's one of the cooler like infrastructure blockchain things that I've, I've seen.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's just super useful because a lot of times, like, you know, storing data on the blockchain, you are very much concerned with storing it in the most efficient manner as far as like the amount of data that you're storing. But that may trade off sometimes with things like, you know, you won't have well-indexed data that's easy to query. Um, and I think that the graph does a great job of of helping to solve that problem.
0: And the graph, the graph uses GraphQL, right?
1: Yeah. So what they do is like at the consumer level, like the consumer basically gets to just hit an end, hit a GraphQL endpoint um, that is going to have that. Right. They're, they're like
0: data. the ultimate GraphQL server. basically.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so the graph is super cool and, and they're working on doing this all in a distributed and decentralized way as well, which is, you know, I, I personally admire as, as a proponent of the ethos of the space.
0: Okay. Well, Brian, such a pleasure talking to you. Really interesting project. Really insightful.
1: Likewise. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And let me know if you'd like any Dark Force invite keys as well to, to give out to any fans.
0: Okay.